Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from both academia and industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Jana, and too high for the podcast. Such are have both of you. I would like to ask you first how you would like to define uh, both of yourself or the audience for maybe first time listening to you. Okay. Uh, hi, Marwa. Um, thank you for this invitation. Um, so, I'm, uh, as you said, I'm Dana Damien. I am a faculty member at the University of Sheffield in the uh, Department of Automatic Control and Systems Engineering. Um, and I also lead a group, uh, the Sheffield Biomedical Robotics uh, Laboratory, where we um, develop uh, medical and surgical robots uh, with a focus on in vivo and implantable uh, robots for um, local therapies inside the body. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, Joe, I right? mm-hmm. um, My name is Shuhei Niyasta. I'm a lecturer, a faculty member of the same department, Automatic Control and Systems Engineering at the University of Sheffield. And I lead another uh, robotics group called uh, Sheffield Micro Robotics Group where I conduct a series of researches on self-assembling robots, a robot that can self-assemble themselves and mm. from parts to uh, higher dimensional structures or origami robots that can self-fold from sheets to uh, complex structures to execute some tasks at an unreachable site. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, yeah. So since both of you were PhD student, uh, uh, Professor, Rolf Perfer, and, and I think that's something was interesting to see if both of you have the same vision what you stated about embodied intelligence, since this series is talking about embodied intelligence. So I'm curious, there was this experience you had, and now you work in soft robotic as well. So how do you see embodied intelligence, if someone was actually embodied intelligence when it comes to soft robotics? Do you have the same vision, and maybe if you can tell us first, what do you think about embodied intelligence? Um, then maybe I can uh, start. Um, the, um, let's say, um, mm. according to DARPA, uh, intelligence can be defined with four characteristics or uh, capabilities. Uh, one is perception, <laughs> one is reasoning, one is um, abstraction, the one is learning. Um, embodied intelligence uh, bridges something um, that are defined as a classical sense of intelligence uh, to uh, something uh, special, temporal, also constraints that we experience uh, um, as time constraint or a special constraint. So embodiment gives a rationale or the context how we associate this high-level intelligence to a real uh, physical world. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Embodied intelligence. The intelligence seems to reside in the body itself and not just in the central nervous system. Um, and uh, this is um, especially an important point for 
roboticist or for those that design physical systems, um, it, it can work in our advantage, um, how we distribute intelligence in the materials and structures and mechanisms and not just in the controller, because obviously this can help us to outsource that intelligence in a distributed way. Mm -hmm. uh, I think this was interesting because uh, we asked the question, should we invest more in the brain or the body when it comes to robotics and material we have, or we have to invest more in the brain? If you look what we have already in nature, but sometimes we have this kind of intelligence maybe in the brain, and this is a debate about where, where intelligence is or consciousness. And, and sometimes we have to reach as you don't have a brain and exhibit intelligence through their bodies. So how do you see the investment? Do you think we have to maybe exhibit intelligence through the body or both of them at the same time? How do you see the correlation between both of them? Yeah, well, I think that the best way is to address this in a monolithic manner. And so taking both, um, both the brain and the body um, at the same time, structurally, as well as um, how we control the two in an evolving manner. And so I think many people agree on this. Um, from the perspective of, um, of our lab, we are more hardware oriented. And uh, so we are looking at the intelligence um, rooted in the materials and uh, mechanisms. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't know if I care something about that. Um, my answer is probably neither of them, neither uh, about the brain nor the body, but ourselves, how much we uh, possess um, flexibility to make decisions ourselves. So it's a high level question, how much free will we possess, but Basically, uh, the uh, ultimate uh, question. Um, um, so what the current robots cannot do is basically to believe in some sort of values that are not necessarily objectively defined mm -hmm. or are defined in a different ways, depending on the countries, areas where one belongs to. And then, but other parts uh, could be uh, addressed sooner or later at some point, as long as we treat robots as passive entity, referring to um, input, referring to its internal states, looking at the lookup table that possesses inside and then conducts actions. But um, ultimate, challenge uh, that we uh, robots are facing is pretty much whether we ourselves are something more than that than the entities that are something more than just you know, acting passively or uh, more than that so uh, in I, that sense are you suggesting that uh, we need a different sort of uh, perspective or paradigm um, in the way we should build the robots that is different than the brain-body paradigm? Yes, uh, it could be a part of brain. You know, we may find that answer by, you know, analyzing or invest investigating the brain architecture or brain system, maybe yes, but it could be also or in the body side that we may find the answer. 
but uh, particularly we should be aware that something we haven't really encountered as a paradigm or concept that brings passive things, objects, to become something more than a passive entities. And then that's uh, the ultimate focus that we should think about it. Mm -hmm. I think that's very interesting. Uh, I don't know if that's related, but we have Professor Donald Hoffman, and he said that he already spoke about whether we see the reality as it is. And you mentioned at the beginning space and time. And he said space and time is doomed, and maybe there's something other than space and time. So when you say the brain and the body is something maybe beyond that, do you imagine what this looks like, like gut feeling? I don't know, something, I don't know if you can elaborate more, push more on that. Um, you know, I, I'm aware of his talks, yeah, and uh, um, he, um, you speak to him about these um, entities that from passive, that become um, object passive from active, and it seems that there could be sort of an active, uh, a continuous transition between such you know, non-living to living systems that uh, depend on a certain complexity. And uh, at the particular complexity, you know, we can, um, we can imagine things like differentiation, um, where, you know, things can differentiate into some kind of brain or some kind of body, but it's not necessarily a discrete definition yeah. of what, it, what is a brain and what is a body. Yeah, you are the first one to say that in, in this series, but I think when you mentioned, uh, when then I say that from living, non-living to living, because we had Professor uh, Gus Ivan from University of Amsterdam, and he said that he didn't understand how something come from life, from no life to life, or this is something is not understandable, how it happened. For you, for, so work, do you have any explanation how you can have something from life to life? If you just say it's maybe not the brain, not the body, something else? Um, how a system identifies itself detaching from the environment is surely one of the abilities that we recognize in the living systems. So emerging from passive entities that would form and some sort of functional structure that can act like living systems. And, but it, when it itself detaches from the environment, it will intrinsically attain some sort of incentive to do something. And that's the, probably the starting point that we would see uh, liveness uh, in such an entity. Mm -hmm. I think this is related also, or is in agreement with, uh, with how I see that transition as uh, some kind of entities that acquire a certain identity. So they, they are aware of their internal state um, and, and are working towards yeah, satisfying some of those internal states needs. Yeah. So with that being said, how do you see that in, in soft robotics, this concept? Do you think maybe when you have uh, um, uh, a problem like this saying that there's something maybe missing in understanding or we don't give much attention in a certain area that we can't design what, what you mentioned. What, what, what do you look to have? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So that's a very nice uh, question, actually. Um, I, I recognize that there has been a lot of advancement in, um, in soft robotics, and it's still an open field with so many more applications and uh, you know, inventions to be made. Um, somehow, what I recognize is that they go along um, some some kind of service application. So almost like, um, yeah, building actuators, better actuators, better sensors, better robots for some particular tasks, service tasks. And um, towards our ambitious ambition as roboticists to develop a, a greater intelligence um, from what we have already achieved, I think that um, these soft robots and robotics in particular are missing uh, some homeostatic aspects. And this relates to what we have just discussed. Uh, some kind of capabilities that give them this sort of incentive to survive. And uh, I think this has been the push in an evolutionary uh, manner to improve our intelligence, the need to survive, um, which our robots don't have. Um, we, I have, I've seen various groups working on um, self-healing um, robots or resilient robots, and I think this is uh, kind of the first steps towards implementing those kind of homeostatic capabilities in robots. So, so uh, adding Dana's point, uh, Dana has been working on robotic implant, a soft robot uh, that is let's say forcefully in, embedded inside the human body and forcefully, forcefully put into a context that it needs to uh, be functional uh, in such an extreme condition for such a long period. So for the robot um, being able to cope with such a context, it itself uh, shouldn't uh, stand out uh, completely uh, at a different think in that or the context and environment happening in that person's human body but somehow has to start seeking an interaction in a fruitful manner to uh, provide uh, fruitful benefits for both sides and that's a starting uh, of seeking an incentive as an individual entity but as a part of a bigger system yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah, so um, I, I, I would like to continue a little bit on, uh, yeah, because he's stepping into my area. So, um, yeah, we, we build the robotic implants that need to stay inside the body for a while, um, could be weeks, months, or years. And so, obviously, um, in such cases, the safety is most important. And unlike in other applications where, um, let me think, maybe field robotics, if the drone breaks or um, the rescue robot breaks, you can immediately replace it. You cannot do the same with an implant or you, you, know, you, you need to avoid doing that um, to, um, to avoid further interventions and even the safety of patients. So, um, I think um, 
we've seen similar similar problems uh, or challenges with uh, robots sent on planets like the um, Mars robot. We need to make sure that such a robot that is placed inside a difficult to access place um, is 100% operational for during all the time and so we need to figure out what are the uh, how to identify faults how to compensate for faults um, and so apart from that therapeutical interaction with the tissue we also need to take greater care of the resilience of that implant um, how it can maintain its operation all the time that's a very interesting point. Uh, I think I would like to skew in that regard because make sure resilience and redundancy, which is very important in top robotics. But when it comes to achieve that, what are the level of intelligence? Because I want to stress again about that you mentioned that we, we don't understand what that thing could look like. But if you want to design this level of intelligence and have this kind of what you mentioned, do you think we have to incorporate uh, living materials? and let it, let it maybe autonomously grow, but if, it's, if we have to do something like that, and I don't know how we imagine uh, reaching this point of intelligence, because yeah, I don't know to which other do you think we are uh, designing a smart or intelligent, and how do you view it as well? Or maybe what is your aspiration to achieve what you mentioned in the material? Which approach do you think we have to have it? Uh, like neural, I don't know, artificial neurons in the material or, or a combination? I'm curious about your thoughts about that, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, as roboticists, uh, we just need to continue our pathway to advance the system to make it more intelligent, let's say, to attain better, slightly bit higher level of autonomy such that it can act more independently in a pretty much a given context and that suffices um, that uh, gives a lower bound how a system should act. Um, as for the uh, upper bound, um, when we expect robots to act in the real world, real world uh, comes with lots of if-then rules that are defined with semantics. For example, this is a street, one way street that you cannot go from this side to another side. So, and these semantics are, are quite tricky. Uh, it comes with ambiguities and it has dual definitions. Uh, so, and also sometimes changes its meaning over time. Uh, for example, or, you know, uh, I'm, this is a table. Uh, but as soon as I sit on this table, it can be defined as a chair. So object itself uh, does not always have an objectively defined a clear meaning. And it's more about our belief, whether we believe and share the belief in a, a pretty much the same way to uh, run the society. But you know, uh, this semantics-based communication is a, also a classical problem, so-called symbol grounding problem or a frame problem in the classical AI. And then this hasn't been resolved yet. So uh, yeah, that's uh, another problem. So we will continue our uh, journey to improve our system, but ultimately what will be 
we think will uh, stay the same. That's kind of my feeling. Mm, yeah, uh, I, I like uh, I like your point, and I think that is uh, so far the ceiling that uh, many people working on intelligence um, have have experienced. Uh, my my take just to bring some um, diversity or or variety to uh, explaining your your question, uh, Marwa. Um, so I think that uh, we have taken as roboticists um, various approaches. One is the synthetic way, right? So uh, we like to build things in order to understand them, and this is different than scientists who. Uh, are studying uh, already existing entities and trying to analyze them. So robotics is like uh, the synthetic way, and I think that is also a good way because it provides some building blocks um, for us to really understand um, but through model, through prediction, what are this system good at um, whether and how intelligent they could be. Um, and as an alternative option, I think also the bio hybrid, because you were sort of um, alluding to uh, the the cells, the cells matter. Um, I think the bio hybrid approach is also an interesting one. Um, although the cells and the tissue itself is seen as a black box, so we just have to take some things as they are. Um, therefore, we cannot explain everything uh, that that system yeah, uh, produces, although it, it may have greater chances possibly to produce some form of intelligence be, just because it has that level of complexity and non-linearity um, from where interesting things can emerge. Okay. Thanks for sharing that, yeah. But I'm curious to ask you about the design again. You mentioned resilience. And imagine we designed this robot at open-ended environment. So both that we have this, we don't know uh, how we can design robot that could be in this uncertainty? Do you think we have to, in that case, less relying on the feedback and how it could be adaptable as well? And if there is damages happening, for example, maybe in the brain and the body, I don't know what, what, what kind of scenario for robot design you have, but how, how do you imagine this kind of adaptation should happen? In, and also the morphology or the shape, or that's if you rely more on the body. So, we know that nature is not really optimal, just adaptable. So how do you think in, in robotics, we can design something maybe beyond what we have in nature and how you can evolve with that as well? Yeah. Um, you mentioned resilient robots in open-ended uh, environments, right? Um, so that kind of uh, autonomy challenge that as roboticists we are facing. Um, what we are working on is um, developing those machines that have some internal states by which they can understand whether um, these machines are intercepting some external disturbances or their own faults. So in order to understand what, what could be an internal um, fault um, or a, a disturbance or just an event, a new event in the environment, a new uncertainty. Um, we are working to provide some form of identity to, to these machines in order to discriminate these forms um, of events. And after being able to identify whether it is 
um, an authorized sort of action event or an unauthorized um, type of fault, then such machines can adaptively respond um, to them. Um, so I think that that brings that uh, that that sort of uh, resilience of of the device. I wanted to continue also on this point to say that um, we are building machines that are soft and resilient. As you know, yeah, the softness of these materials have some inherent resilience, right? Um, but we are also actively exploiting the, the softness, the stretchability of these machines for resilience. And so, uh, to give you a concrete example, one of our robotic um, implants is flexible with uh, capabilities to extend, retract, and flex. And so that this sort of uh, deformations are being exploited um, in order to actively identify and disambiguate faults, um, as well as to compensate for faults. And this is a, a very interesting way um, to, to, to deal and to adapt to uncertainties, um, which we haven't seen, say, in, in uh, systems such as um, aircraft, which, which have uh, a really strong conventional fault tolerance, uh, fault tolerance models, just because they are not able to reconfigure as soft robots. Um, one of the incentives for uh, studying with robots is basically to understand ourselves. Um, definition of adaptation is strongly uh, constrained by how we perceive the phenomena, applying our values what kind of behaviors, outcomes are better or worse. But ultimately, the question is whether we can really objectively define good and bad. And um, I have a big radical perception in that view that um, uh, it's not so easy as we believe. I was talking with Dana, uh, about um, this issue. And uh, for example, um, nobody doubts basically they uh, live longer the better. But even this perspective is doubtful given that probably people in 200 years would live twice as long as we live of now. So let's say you know, they would live 180 years. And from their perspectives, people in 200 years, we only live up to, let's say, 80 years or 80 plus years. Uh, it looks so unfortunate, but we don't normally mourn regret about this situation that we can only live 80 years, not 180 years, but we just cherish our lives. Why don't we really? regulate that our lifetime is half of you know people in future could be or longer than people 100 years ago could live which was around 50 years 
so uh, it's pretty much based on our belief belief that you know living after 80 years should be defined as fortunate thing and we proactively believe this is good and this is mm -hmm. better regardless of whether this is objectively uh, validatable or not mm -hmm. is us and then um, by using robots ultimately i'd like to know who we are so uh, the direction is different, not good and bad exist a priori before we apply to robots, but using this robot and try to answer how we define good and bad ultimately is mm. something that I'm thinking. So what you're saying is that we are already applying our biases on how we design a robot or, or how we impose a value to a robot. Um, but what you want to do is to create probably a self-emerging robot that has um, more objective values and understand from such a dry objective um, value what, um, what the human is or a living system is. So, so, so far, uh, mostly the robot designers uh, provide fitness functions to mm -hmm. robots mm -hmm. and say this is better, this is worse. Um, deep learning has started to provide some tools that system itself could come up with self-defining such a fitness function. So that's the ultimate. Uh, question whether robot itself can develop its objective or fitness functions. But my perception is probably deep learning would enable robots to come up with, uh, even after primitive, primitive shape uh, to possess such a tool. But that doesn't necessarily directly answer whether this is something that living systems uh, appreciate is is there a clear methodology for roboticists to follow this path i'm guessing that self-assembly you see self-assembly as one but are there some certain building blocks as a methodology for roboticists to follow in order to reach this. So, um, so um, coming back to the initial value. point, coming back to the initial point, knowing that even the longer to live, the better is questionable. My answer is it is almost impossible to define that um, uh, to make a or to make a system that um, that enables itself uh, to act better because this definition of better mm. is pretty much mm. based on our subjective perception, which is not grounded mm. to scientific objective facts. Okay, well, what I want to say here is that you are more or less assuming that there is already some intelligent entity that can apply some uh, judgment of bad or good mm -hmm. 
But I think you could go back to the simplicity of an, an entity that just wants to survive. Even survive mm -hmm. may not be a good thing in some mm -hmm. context. So yeah. let's say, you know, die quicker, the better. If there is a context or species mm -hmm. that is put in this context, then basically to disappear is a bit, but uh, mm. is a better thing. Yeah. Okay. I can I can see what you're saying. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, um, I think we a number of generations are basically living um, under a similar set of values, and uh, yeah, this is what we are sort of striving to optimize our um yeah our our lives and so there there is a set of constraints um at this point in in our evolution um within which we are building such systems whereas you are speaking a more about more on an evolutionary scale where even values themselves can vary So let's say, uh, how do we define that how many years that one lives, then that's the perfect state. So mm. if we live 80 years or yeah. 100 years or 100 years, yeah. uh, how yeah. long that should one live aim at yeah. to say, oh, this is optimal? Some generations now, we are happy with the life extent. That we have we have and that's why this acts as a constraint for the type of systems that we want to build yeah thank you made this a thoughtful point and i would like to stop again because dana made a, a, a very important question to you about what could be the methodology about what you mentioned and what you mentioned actually remind me also to donald hoffman uh, episode he said that there's correlation between the fitness payoff and objective reality so for example that why human don't have for example, or or we don't have any certain shape because we have certain fitnesses in the environment we're living in. And that's why you say maybe dying may be better and surviving may be worse for you. And that's, I don't know if you can maybe push again about what you mentioned at the beginning because that's related to what this reality is. Maybe not the brain, not the body, it's something that what we discussed. And also that uh, fitness payoff. So what we're really doing that eight years and we may be exhausting, our fitness is exhausting and that why we die, for example. So do you see the relationship between when we design the robot, do you think maybe that question, how do you see the relationship between the fitness payoff of the robot and the reality, whether it's intelligence, the brain, the body or something else? Mm -hmm. Can you evolve it in something beyond what we have in constraint we have already in, in our lifetime? Um, this is uh... a... Interesting question. Um, for example, uh, an ability to taste something mm -hmm. more accurately or more uh, precisely, is this something uh, you know, better or worse as an ability? Is it questionable actually? Many people would ask, well, you know, the more sophisticated tongue uh, you would have, then you know you can really uh, more enjoy 
what you eat and distinguish what you eat and then um, cherish your life or fertilize your life better. However, um, you know, from the survivor's perspective, if one cannot really eat food, tasty food in some place, uh, surely demotivates the person to survive in that place. And he, she may decide to relocate the place uh, to live, for example, where one can afford a better food that you know, satisfies him or her. So this has been a question I'm wondering how we define a better ability or a worse ability in an objective way. Same, same for a uh, similar uh, to this color distinguishing ability that whether um, the more variety of colors that one can distinguish the better and is if whether this is true or not really depends on the social context uh, we live. And it's not necessarily easily definable objectively. So yeah, this is uh, something of open question and I don't have a particular answer. But basically trying to answer uh, this question is something that roboticists are uh, either consciously or unconsciously doing. And uh, we'll, uh, we will uh, be uh, moving towards the answer, uh, you know, despite the progress speed that we are facing. So I'm in that sense optimistic. Mm. Yeah, I think that is one of the ambitious, uh, ambitions that uh, um, many roboticists have. And um, I think it's a hard question to, uh, to, to answer whether it, it, there is a particular way to answer it, um, whether there is a, a recipe to come up with uh, an, objective, um, an, an objective valued robot that will answer you know what is life or what is um what is good or what is objectively bad i think that's uh, uh that that's difficult but there might be a way uh i i am happy with um developing those kind of robots that under the current circumstances they can dynamically update their fitness function and construct the, their current reality with possibly their own bias because that is what explains what a human is but uh, in, a, um, in a more uh, incremental way and possibly in a, in a bit more objective way. Um, so applying, um, applying logical um, inference, applying some sort of uh, uh, emotions um, or their own beliefs may explain some uh, behavior, human behavior, some human tendencies towards peace, towards war. And uh, uh, that's, that's part of uh, you know, the, the impact that we would like to have as, as roboticists, I think, on a, uh, ultimately. Thanks so much for this thoughtful point, yeah. And maybe we can go for maybe Currently speaking, the technological blocks a limitation when it comes to design material that has this all intelligent, all sensing. Because we have this kind of approach, maybe how we can, yeah, we know sensing is still challenging and we have a lot of 
things to do. But do you think uh, we have to design material that have this intrinsic fencing capabilities and we don't have to uh, like feed them with uh, like conductive fiber or whatever element of fencing? And do you think that's something uh, still challenging for you? How do you see this kind of sensing uh, so that we can have this kind of sort of intelligence? And again, do you think we have to list relying on the feedback and make it more predictive so that we can anticipate this uncertainty? How do you see this kind of wish list sensing design? Or maybe limitation we have already through your work? Yeah. Maybe it's a field internal, yeah. Sensing at the uh, low level uh, can be a progressed, just following the pathways that we have followed. So finding a better sensor, improving the ability of these sensors, and then, for example, or pH sensor, let's say a pH sensor that can sense a wider range of pH acidic level or the higher resolution of acidic level. This kind of improvement are on track and then we just you know, continue our journey. However, uh, if it comes to uh, decision making referring to such a sensor input, we need to somehow give a meaning to the sensory input let's say a designer and then uh, this uh, sensory input will be constrained by semantics that we use to interpret a phenomenon and uh, again as long as we start relying on semantics everything cannot be detached from how we perceive quite subjective perception of values or beliefs mm -hmm. Um, so that would immediately encounter, well, you know, the robot behaves as such. That is because uh, it reflected your perception of good and bad as a designer. The question is whether a robot itself uh, could be, could do such a decision making and could develop such a values itself is an, actually an open question. But by uh, through making different types of robot, we will surely uh, come to this point and to see how we do uh, such a int intelligent decision making makings in our daily lives. Could be through autonomous car driving, or could be through ingestible robots. But that's a part of the interesting part of doing robotics researches. I'm not directly answering, um, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah, that's what mm -hmm. I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, uh, I think we've seen great strides in in sensing and in soft uh, sensing, um, and yeah, there 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 are still technical challenges um, as we do need more sensing and more sensing. Right, distributed sensing is not enough just to have a sensor at the tip of an end effector. Right, we want to know um, exactly where we have. Um, interacted, uh, how we interacted with the environment. We want to know, or well, the robot needs to know about itself um, locally and globally. So uh, while we've come up with various technologies on sensing, uh, we do see the need, I think, to have a more sensing, distributed sensing. And that 
uh, raises um, more technical challenges of uh, uh, integration and ultimately on, on semantics, what uh, Shuhei um, has said. Um, we have seen passive, um, passive uh, solutions of, say, self-healing, right? But we don't, uh, at the level, at the robotics system level, we don't know exactly, or the robot doesn't know where that fault has been produced, right? Uh, so enabling the robot to know where that sensing uh, has um, ha has been intercepted, it's also important, and we'll get to a point when where integration um, challenges will be will 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 need appropriate solutions. So since we're closing in the free question, I think I would like to follow up what you said because you're working and you both of you have really application. I think we need it so uh, yeah in our lifetime. So, but the question about um, do you think that coming back to the non-linearities in the material, what kind of material maybe you think we have to have or maybe kind of optimal material you think you need it in your work? But the question is, when we look, for example, I like the example of the dead fish swimming upstream and the question how the dead fish can have all that for free. They can have the geometric, uh, maybe I don't know what, what's explanation, but how this kind of geometric and maybe material non-linearities, I don't know how we can couple them so that we can have this intrinsic, for example, controlled, functionalized displacement, whatever, and also have this kind of redundancy and we don't have to rely in an external sensing or, or maybe, I don't know, controller. Do you believe that, I think that's come to morphology computation and either it's part of embodied intelligence, I don't know what you think about that, but do you think we should uh, embrace this nonlinear just in the geometry and the material in a certain way that we can have this intrinsically controlled functionalities? and also maybe have this kind of resilience automatically? Would it make sense to you or does it make sense? Is it necessary to have a robotics or not? Yeah, um, so our lab is, uh, we are playing with materials there and um, um, we have two dimensions, the way we address the, the material research. One is, where we want to explore, you know, smart materials. You know, what, what, uh, um, how can intelligence be encoded into the material structures, in, um, into the materials properties and, and and structures? But the other side is more clinically oriented, where not necessarily a new material needs to be discovered, but uh, for the sake of uh, quick translation. We want to sort of combine biocompatible materials that are already um, uh, approved clinically, uh, such that um, we use them for our medical devices. But uh, your point refers more to the the first type of of research, and I I, I think that we do have to. Um, to, to embrace those kind of uh, non-linearities uh, from the materials. Uh, we, both of us are in a control department. And in our, in our department, uh, our colleagues, and I think the control community has a tendency to uh, linearize behave, the behavior of a material or of, of a robotic system in order to come up with uh, controllers that are uh, more effective in um, avoiding external disturbances, right? But uh, I think that uh, in the long term, 
we are excluding some interesting behavior coming from those nonlinearities. And uh, if we hope um, to have some sort of emergent systems with some interesting behaviors, I think we need to exploit those kind of nonlinearities. A robot uh, that can think um, for uh, autonomous behavior is surely something we are looking for. So in that sense, uh, it is surely sound it surely sounds ideal that everything is implemented in the body, even as a material or even with or without electronics that enables computational ability to reason as, a, as an entity. Now, all, I'm more interested in a replacing uh, electronic electronically supported computational part with a physically realized uh, in reason of reasoning components that endows the entity with abilities to think such that it can make decisions and act autonomously uh, through uh, investigating uh, the possibility to realize such a system, I would uh, pursue uh, whether, um, I would pursue the meaning of autonomous, something that we believe is more than just reactive performances. And then, that the key feature that um, separates between these possible entities and the entities that we regard um, features a bit more uh, autonomous uh, decisions mm. um, is uh, something probably we should particularly focus on even realizing physically through materials which is probably just more than making system uh, a bit closer to those uh, that are uh, implemented um, electronic components with microcontrollers and batteries. So are you saying that uh, you, you think that there are materials or combination of materials that can implement a, a smarter behavior than simply responsive? We would uh, continue this endeavor by making, you know, reflexes, you know, simple, starting with simple reflex, like smart material-based robots can respond to a signal input. And then next step would be here to realize some sort of memories. The next step is some sort of logical computations. The next step will be with the higher level computations. Mm -hmm. And then make things smarter and smarter such that uh, using a non-electronic component system could behave something equivalent to uh, mm -hmm. those conventional robots are mm -hmm. already capable of, but mm -hmm. probably at a smaller scale, so different. Uh, you know, or, or figures such that, for example, it could be biodegradable. Um, however, uh, 
ultimately we would encounter the same problem that the uh, mm -hmm. current uh, robots have encountered already that uh, what we mean by sensible decision makings mm -hmm. hmm. okay that's interesting i don't know if then i had something to add you want to add something right uh, I'm, I'm processing uh, in a different uh, way what he has said, but uh, yeah, uh, um, yeah, I, 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 I can see that working. Yeah, that's very thoughtful. So I think we have, because we have, uh, yeah, I appreciate your time, but maybe we can ask her last week question. I'm curious about through your work, do you have any something maybe you thought would work in a certain way, but through experimentation, it was surprising or counterintuitive to what you already thought about. You have a maybe, I don't know, through modeling or simulation, you have certain expectation for the robot to behave in a certain behavior, but in reality, I don't know, wasn't surprising. You didn't expect that. Counterintuitive and just like, wow, I just, I didn't expect that. Do you have any scenario like that happen through your research uh, work? Yeah. Well, I'll. I'll give a one example that was surprising to me um, and it kind of made me think a lot. Um, it was the first time we implanted a robot into a living animal um, and that implant has stayed in the, ro in the animal, in a pig for about two weeks and uh, we knew something was some possibly wrong but uh, we couldn't see anything not much from our signals not much from the imaging um, x-ray and so as the animal was okay yeah we waited until uh, the the last day of the experiment and um, we euthanized the animal uh, and when we took out the robot, the robot was pretty much all broken in parts, in parts. Um, and what was surprising to me was that, was that you have the, the most um, durable and robust component of this whole big system, animal and robot, was the animal, uh, not the robot. Although you would think that, hey, you put a a metal, a plastic, durable robot inside an animal. That's the, you know, the strongest thing in that system. Yet with, even if the robot was, was broken, the animal survived um, for those many weeks uh, and not the robot. So that has, uh, that made me think about how to make a robot that, uh, maintains its operation, his, its structural integrity, um, and how to make this coupling between the living system and the robot uh, really effective over a long period of time um, in a medical context. And that's one of those, those um, uh, research questions that we work on in the lab. Uh, thanks so much. I think that's needed another episode about structural integrity, because what you mentioned also is very, very interesting uh, story. So our group has been developing ingestible origami robots uh, for the retrieval of an accidentally ingested uh, ferromagnetic materials like um, 
bottom battery. So that a patient ingests an origami robot that can retrieve and accidentally ingested bottom battery is one of the goals. And uh, we are recently uh, trying to replace um, materials with uh, other types of materials, uh, chemistry made, made of yeah. chemicals such as hydrogels. And the lifetimes of these uh, chemical-based materials tend to be much shorter than conventional materials that we have been using for, let's say, classical robotic platforms. And uh, for example, hydrogel uh, is more sensitive to the environment and uh, sometimes it, it's uh, heavily affected by the humidity and tends to get broken much quicker mm -hmm. than we expected. So for the use in the application, it is fine, but for the use in the research to be used uh, for weeks and months, it's not necessarily uh, reliable. And that's something that we are learning a lot these days. Mm -hmm. Thank you, yeah. So the last question, uh, I would like to ask you what could be the most important quality uh, you have gained while being working at Greeny? One important quality you have to maintain to your academic career, maybe you have gained or you have to maintain as well. What could be that, the most important quality? That's a good question. Uh, there are a few. Uh, <laughs> For me, the most important factor uh, to set as a research topic is whether the topic ultimately brings us to a question to understand ourselves, ultimately to answer why we are living. So any aspect that I implement in robotics researches are more or less would uh, not stop our working steps towards understanding who we are. And these um, very subtle, but uh, quite distinctive um, implementations in the uh, designing platforms, experiments, uh, researches is something uh, that I regret very important and the uh, highest quality that I appreciate found in my research activities? Uh, um, my personal viewpoint and looking retrospectively as well uh, is uh, trying to keep my research genuine without sort of straying um, my research direction according to trends that come and go. That's very, thanks so much. I think very, very important point. And lastly, maybe what's the best advice I was giving to you and maybe it was a life changing, I don't know, sorry, career or maybe in general, you would like to share it, yeah. For me, uh, living in different, let's say, countries yeah. really gave me um, some sort of insight 
seeing that people have so different perceptions on the same fact so differently just just you know just you know because they are in different places and then mm -hmm. just crossing a border and encounters quite different sets of sense of values um, recognized as as um, undoubtful of facts by some people which is not by other people really put me in a thought uh, how can we objectively define a, you know something good and bad while yeah. we ourselves uh, perceive so differently and again uh, this semantics based reasoning communication is so unreliable that we cannot you know it's nothing more than our belief uh, that what i'm seeing here for example a towel towel is just our belief it's just a trillions of connections molecules somehow we just believe this is a towel that can be shared as a concept with others but because robots cannot do this such a simple perception, they still struggle to fold a cloth. But we humans can do. So there is a something that separates between us and the robots. And uh, living in different places is something an experience that yeah, provided me with an opportunity to think these questions. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, I'm going to relate this answer to your previous uh, point on, you know, the academic world, I guess. Um, and it's a nice question because um, it just makes me think about all the many people um, in the past, you know, the past years that have mentored and, uh, you know, held me through this path and all their advices. Um, uh, but so let me just settle on one, I guess, um, which is goes back to my undergrad studies. Um, and one of my friends have told me uh, not to be afraid of uh, risking and and stepping into uh, jumping into the dark, uh, into the into the unknown areas. And um, um, I think that kind of was a, a, a wake call for me and I appreciate that kind of advice uh, because uh, research has been all about that kind of uncertainty and and uh, dark regions that awaits for us to uh, discover um, and not being really afraid of an unpredictable path. Thanks so much Dana, that was very inspiring for both of you, I think you have very thoughtful conversation and uh, ideas. Uh, I do appreciate your time. Such an honor to have both of you. Uh, thank you once again. I do appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for thank having you. us. Thank you.